Thank you, Bob. Praise the Lord. He is near, and it's a blessing that he walks with us. Well, this was a special week for my wife and I, because this week we celebrated our 49th wedding anniversary. Uh, it was an exciting time after all those years to reflect on that time. We went out to dinner together, had a wonderful time together. I think Ray and Hazel are celebrating 49th too, aren't you? A week before us, or a week week before us. So uh, we just praise the Lord for his faithfulness to us. We've changed quite a lot since those early days. Uh, when we were married just about a year there, the lieutenant and his new wife in Sacramento, California. But uh, God is good and gave us 10 children since that time. And we rejoice in those children. And now we have grandchildren, I think about 34 if I've got the count right. But we find as we go on that uh, things are repeated in life, and these children do some of the same things our children did. And you know, when you go somewhere and travel in the car, you've probably had this experience. The kids say, well, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? And are all excited about that, and they finally ask it so many times that finally you say, don't ask me that again. We'll get there. Uh, well, that's somewhat the way God saw the Israelites the godly Israelites, the ones who trembled at his word, they were saying, when are these promises going to happen? When is the renewal of Israel going to take place so God can work out his plan in history? And that's what we're going to deal with today in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, but particularly 7 and 8. Although actually we're going to go into more detail about those verses next week because we want to look at the context this week. I would like to ask you today, uh, as you listen to the message, to try to think of one question, just one question that you have, one thing that you don't understand, one thing that wasn't clear, maybe one thing that you all understand and saw clearly, but you suspect that other people didn't get it. If you could just have one question, there's a card in the pews in front of you, uh, and you can take that card and write that question and hand it to me or hand it to pastor or put it under his door. I'd like to have those uh, right after the service today. So many people say, well, I don't quite understand this or that, and I really would appreciate it if you could help me know where you're at by letting me know what questions you have about the message this morning and this entire subject. Well, as we turn our attention to the Word of God before us, we find that uh, God had made such wonderful promises. When we turn back to chapter 65, here in verses 18 through 25, the, the promises concerning the coming of the kingdom, an amazing promise. Uh, here in chapter 66, verses 10 and following about Jerusalem, and this isn't the first time Jerusalem has been mentioned. Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world, the center of political activity, the center of religious activity. And Jerusalem will be a blessing to the whole world. That's not the way people look at it today. That's not the way people look at it today. Today it is a trembling cup. It is a burden in our world today. But God is going to change all that, and he's going to make it a place of spiritual renewal and a center of worship and political activity. Well, when is this all going to begin? When is this spiritual renewal going to come? We find the answer to that in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8. And the answer to that is at this hour, the hour in which the most visible, horrendous, 
event in history will take place, the abomination of desolation. I was shocked uh, a week or so ago as I talked to some of my older grandchildren that when I talked about the abomination of desolation, they didn't know what I was talking about. And I happened to notice that an awful lot of my grandchildren spread in these two rows here. Can any of you tell me what the abomination of desolation is? Really? Do you know what it is? Nobody knows what the abomination of desolation is? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. In the temple, there was the holy place and then the most holy place. In the most holy place, you remember historically, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where the Shekinah glory would appear there and above the tabernacle or the temple, uh, there in that holy place. Well, when they rebuilt the temple with Herod, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore, and it remained empty. And one of the things that the pagans could never understand about the Hebrews is that in their most holy place, there was nothing. There was no portrayal of their God. There was no idol. There was no one to bow down to. And that is because what we talked about last week, God is transcendent, isn't he? He's above everything. He can't be contained in a temple or a house. But it is a holy place where people commune with him. Well, the abomination of desolation is going to be placed in the holy place by the Antichrist just after the midpoint of the tribulation. And we'll be talking about that later. But what uh, the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to put in that most holy place as he takes control and seeks to be upheld as God. He's going to take control of that holy place. He's going to put probably an animated statue in there. Maybe like we'd see at Disney World today of Abraham Lincoln or some famous person. A computer animated person who looks like a person. And this person will look like the Antichrist. And he will be in, he says this right in the, the book of Revelation. He will be there and he will be animated and, he, and all the peoples of the world be able, will be required to bow down and worship him. Now this is a very horrible thing to put such a thing in the holy temple of God and to take a man and elevate him to the status of God. It is a horrific event. It is spoken of by Matthew in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. He says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor ever shall be. The most horrific period of human history follows the placement of the abomination of desolation in the holy temple. When Jesus, in the quote above, referred to Daniel, he was referring to this verse, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, that's the great angel who is the angel of Israel, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. The placement of the abomination of desolation in the temple 
is a blatant, open, defiant act against the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, orchestrated by the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the beast, the three individuals who seek to mock the Trinity of God. The Antichrist has risen at this point to a place of absolute authority, having uprooted three nations and essentially overwhelmed seven others. By now he, was, he has killed the two witnesses who were essentially the only effective opposition left. The placement of the abomination of desolation in the holy place of the temple by the Antichrist is the beginning of Zion's pain, which we read about in our verses today in Isaiah. It is the pain that begins during the midpoint of the tribulation with the placement of the abomination of desolation in the temple and continues for three and a half years to the end of the tribulation. This period of time is often called the Great Tribulation. In fact, you'll notice if you look at that passage in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus refers to the Great Tribulation. Then shall be the Great Tribulation when you see the abomination of desolation placed in the temple. The birthing pains, this is the quiz that I was getting you all try to think about and answer. The birthing pains of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 7 and the travailing of Isaiah chapter 66 verse 8 is a reference to the second half of the tribulation or the great tribulation. In other words, in the figure, the laboring of the mother, which brings forth the child, generally, normally speaking, uh, is, is the three and a half years of the great tribulation. So if we look at our verses here in Isaiah chapter 66, looking at verse 7, it says, before, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. So if we paraphrase that, in order to take the figures of speech out of it and put it in plain speaking, we would do it like this. It would say something like this. It's written in your notes. Before Zion entered the great tribulation, she brought forth. Before the great tribulation came, Zion was delivered of Christ. So what it's saying here is that before her labor, which is before the great tribulation, which is the second three and a half years of the tribulation period, she brought forth a man-child, and of course that man-child is Christ. And it seems a little bit strange, but we find this in Isaiah chapter 7 as well in the prophecies there, that Christ was born way, way long time before that. But as we're going to see next week, uh, Isaiah is tying some things together from the, from the past. So Christ is going to be born before the great tribulation period. And of course, we know that's true. He's already been born. The great tribulation is yet future. Then looking at Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. In other words, as soon as the abomination of desolation was placed in the holy place, which begins the second three and a half years of the tribulation, as soon as that happened, Zion birthed her children. So if we were to paraphrase that, we might do it like this. 
Shall the lamb be made to bring forth in one day? When we, the word there for earth in the Hebrew can equally be translated land. We think of the United States as the land or home of the brave and free, the land of Americans. And so the word land would be a good translation there. Shall the land be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion entered into the great tribulation, she brought forth a nation, Israelites, poor and of a contrite spirit and trembling at God's word. What is this event? This is the event that's referred to in Romans chapter 11 in the New Testament. Turn there to Romans chapter 11 with me for just a moment and let's look at that quickly. Romans chapter 11 verse 25. This is what it says. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is a truth that is revealed in the New Testament that was not previously prophesied in the Old Testament. That ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now we've talked a lot different times in the past and different speakers about the blindness of Israel that they have today, the, the partial blindness. But we don't often talk about what this fullness of the Gentiles is. We're going to talk about that next week. And then we look at verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That event will take place before the labor, the travailing of Zion, which is before the second half of the tribulation period. So it's talking here about the nation of Israel as a whole, although there are exceptions of individuals, but as a whole being saved, a mass conversion of Israelites. We're going to talk about that in more detail next week as we look more specifically at the midsection of the tribulation period, the events that took place there leading up to the abomination and desolation, and, and, and it's a tremendous, interesting study. I think you'll really appreciate it. But before you could fully appreciate it, you have to understand what the tribulation is. And uh, the tribulation essentially is revealed to us in the book of Revelation in the Bible. So what I hope to do today is uh, do a flyover of the tribulation period. And as we, as we have lived in COVID-19 these days, uh, in my life at least, and I think unless you were alive during World War II, and there may be a few here like that, uh, it, it is the major event that has caused changes in our lives. It's been almost worldwide. And it has interrupted the way people do business on a daily basis. Very few things like that have been in the past. But as we contemplate on that and see all the ramifications now that are coming from what has been done, as we realize what we've experienced, actually uh, not a great deal of hardship, but some inconvenience and some changes in our routine and the way we work, think what it will be like for those during the tribulation period. And that's what I want you to do with me today. I want to go through the tribulation period, and I want to uh, show you or try to create or portray for you how people will feel, what it will be like to live in the tribulation period. 
Now, in case somebody isn't up to speed, let's just review a minute. The cross of Christ, where he died for our sins, was followed by the birth of the church. The church was born on Pentecost, not when John the Baptist baptized, not when Abraham was given the covenant in the Old Testament. On Pentecost it began. And it's going to end with the rapture of the church. All dead Christian saints, those saved for Pentecost to the moment of the rapture, will be resurrected and given glorified bodies and taken to heaven with Jesus Christ. And then those of us who are alive will be glorified or transformed into our glorified bodies and will go up with him back to heaven. And then there'll come the seven-year tribulation period. We've talked about it, we've mentioned it, but we haven't really taught you or shown you what this period is like and what's going to happen and what it's all about. And that's what we want to do today. And then at the end of that time, at the great battle of Armageddon, the revelation of Jesus Christ will take place. In other words, as the battle is going on at a certain point, and we'll see that in Zechariah, the Lord uh, appears in heaven. That's the, the revealing, apocalypse, the uncovering of the Savior, Messiah. And he will come down to the earth and he will set up his kingdom on the earth. That's the revelation. Together we call these the second coming. Uh, someone last week caught it that my slide was a little bit different. It labeled the revelation as the second coming. And many people do that. But I think it's better for us, and many others in uh, premillennial circles agree with this, to think of the second coming as a two-stage process. The rapture, which is the second coming as far as we're concerned, and the revelation, which is the second coming as far as the earth is concerned. And together, they're the second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he was here for 30 years. And the first coming was a birth followed by a crucifixion, 30 years, 30-year time span he was on the earth. The second advent will be a seven-year time span between the rapture and the revelation. And then comes the millennial kingdom. So what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on that middle time frame there from the time of the rapture to the time of the revelation and study what happens there, and it should make a difference in our lives. We'll see that a little bit later. One of the complaints that people have who uh, don't think that there's going to be a tribulation in the future is that uh, we overlook, as premillennialists, tribulation in the present. And I want to say to you this morning that there are people in the world today, as we see this tribulation period unravel before our eyes and what life will be like then, there are people today going through just as horrendous of persecution and treatment as the people during the tribulation period. My wife shared with me a news article. Oh, a couple of times she has. I, one time I said, I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that today. Uh, of, a, of one of the nations of the world that is taking care of their dissidents and their people that they want to get rid of by harvesting their organs and uh, selling them and using them for other people. Uh, horrendous. North Korea, China, and other places that could be named. Christians are being horribly treated. They are being martyred. They are being tortured. They are being exploited. 
And when we talk about this great tribulation period and the severity of it, that is not to minimize what people are going through today as Christians in the church age. But here's the difference. In the tribulation, it will be worldwide. Not just individuals, not that they're not significant. They are significant. We should pray for them, and we should encourage our government to do all it can to see to their proper treatment. And we should do all we can. But it's individuals. And in the great tribulation, it will be the whole world. And you'll see that as we go on. Uh, Secondly, today when people talk about the coming to the end of the world, lifestyles of people don't really change very much. But in the great tribulation period, people cannot help but change their lifestyles because they will be forced by conditions on this earth to radically live a different kind of life. And so those are the differences between the persecution or tribulation or travailing of individuals today and the great tribulation, which will be a travailing of the whole world. The first event in this in this tribulation period, and this is not in the period, this actually is before the period, is the rapture of the church. And the church will be raptured, as we said before, uh, church saints who are dead, resurrected in glorified bodies and taken to heaven with Christ, and those living transformed into glorified bodies and going with Christ to heaven. And there they'll be in heaven with Jesus Christ. And that is referred to twice in Scripture as the day of Christ, the day of Christ. And the judgment seat of the, of the Lamb will take place there where church saints will be rewarded for their faithfulness. And then later in that period of time will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not really concerned about that today. What we want to talk about is what happens on earth and what it's like to live on earth during this time. And the event that will initiate the beginning of the tribulation is not the rapture, but is a covenant made by the little horn. The little horn is given that name by the prophet Daniel. And he has other names too. He's called the fierce king. He's called the antichrist. He's called the little horn. And there's a couple of others as well. He is the key figure of Satan on earth during the tribulation period. It says in, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and he, the prince that shall come, is the one in reference, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now in the Hebrew, the word for week is in fact a, a, a period, not a day. We think of a week, we think of a day. But this is a week of years, as in the context, because we find out later it's clarified by days and months and so forth. So it is seven periods of time, or seven years. Uh, The seals and judgments of Revelation are kind of the backdrop to what men are doing on the earth. While Antichrist is working out all of his scenario and plans and efforts, in the background... (laughs) Hardly, hardly say in the background because it's so intrusive on people's lives. In the background, the, the great trumpet judgments are taking place. Well, first the sealed judgments, and then the trumpet judgments, and then the vials or bowls. And these are taking place and making major transformations on the way people live upon the earth. And you can imagine the political, political climate 
as there are continually disasters happening that need to be dealt with for people's sake, but cannot be because they're so massive. Well, the first, the first seal is a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is a picture of Antichrist. Antichrist attempts to portray himself as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. So he comes on a white horse. But he really does not have the authority of Messiah, who comes with a sword in his mouth. And he comes only with a bow. And so he has limited power. In fact, he has only the power that God allows him to have. And God allows him great power. But he is still under the, under the control and providence of God. Well, that's the first seal. That's the beginning of the tribulation. The covenant made with many for seven years. Now, there emerges next in this scenario the two witnesses. You can think when the rapture takes place, all believers will be removed from the earth. All Christians, who are the believers of that time, will be removed from the earth. There'll be no one on the planet who is saved. And there enters at this point two witnesses, they're called, who, you know, God never uses angels to evangelize. It's an interesting observation to make in Scripture. It is the responsibility of believers to evangelize. And these two witnesses appear, and they're amazing individuals. And if you study them closely, although people have debated about it, it's pretty conclusive from the evidence that, the, that those two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, especially judging from the miracles they're capable of performing. That's, that's really very interesting. Thinking a minute about the personal aspect of it in the life of Moses and the life of Elijah. Remember, Moses got to the edge of the promised land, and did he go in? No. He was allowed to stand on Mount Nebo and look out over the, the city, of the place that would eventually become Jerusalem. We did that too, but it was a foggy day, so we couldn't see quite as far as I hope he did. He never got into the promised land, but here he finds himself in Jerusalem, the heart of the promised land, ministering for his Lord. And then Elijah. Remember Elijah was a prophet who uh, went out and got so discouraged that he was the only one that was faithful and knew the Lord. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, oh, no. Oh, no, there's more out there. And here he comes into this situation, the tribulation, where it has the same kind of appearance. Same kind of appearance. It's as if he and Moses are the only ones who really know the Lord. It's amazing. Keep in mind that in this life, the successes, the experiences, the trials, the tribulations that you are facing are preparing you for what God wants you to do in the future after you've gone on. And that's the situation here with Moses and Elijah. Moses is given an opportunity that was taken from him while he was living, but now is given to him. And Elijah is given an, a situation that is so similar to a situation that he faced in this life that he can look back on it and say, yes, God was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. Well, here we read about these two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses... And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's how many days? 
Come on. 1,260 days or three and a half years. Isn't that interesting? Half of the seven-year period. When we study these individuals, uh, it, it's almost conclusive that it will be the first half of the tribulation that they will minister in instead of the second half. So they appear right after the making of the covenant as witnesses to God to replace the believers that have been taken off the earth. So God leaves on the earth, or sends to the earth, two witnesses with great power to speak for him. Listen to this. They're clothed in sackcloth. They will prophesy. It says they will prophesy, and they are clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. That's a referral reference back to Zechariah. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. Very interesting individuals. They are called my two witnesses, and it said they shall prophesy, and they are compared to the candlesticks and the olive tree in Zechariah. Zechariah came to Israel to lead them into the finishing of the building of the temple. And then we look at them and we find in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says another thing about them. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the dreadful, great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. There's going to be tremendous revival especially in the first half of the tribulation. We, don't see, we only see that really in one place where the martyrs are under the altar who have turned to God. But Elijah's going to have an impact. He's going to have a ministry, a personal ministry to the people of that day in terms of fathers and sons. But then it also says in Mark chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, and he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. That's Elijah. He says, before Christ comes, he will come and he will restore all things. When you put all this together, you have a picture of two witnesses who are left on the earth when there are no other witnesses for God. And the challenge they take on is restoring all things, to restore all things in the minds of these saints like Elijah and Moses out of the Old Testament, is to build a temple. And uh, they will be instructing and indoctrinating those who come to be believers, and they will be building. You know, you think for a moment, when all Christians are taken off this earth, some things are not going to change. What would happen if today somebody went to Israel and started trying to build a temple? Well, the whole Muslim Arab world would be armed up and alert and ready to attack. It's not really going to be any different after the rapture and start of the tribulation period. 
The same people who hate Israel before will hate Israel after. The same people who absolutely don't want anything to do with the building of a temple will not want to have anything to do with the building of the temple after the beginning of the, of the tribulation. But a temple has to be built. A, a temple worship system has to be set up, which is the worship system of the tribulation period. Jesus endorsed it in the Gospels when he spoke about the Sabbath and those events. And uh, the only way they're going to do that is if they have some power that's unusual. And they're given power here that will allow them to stand against the world and restore the temple that has been so long neglected. Along with them, then, there appear shortly 144,000 sealed children of Israel. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 says, saying, Hurt not the earth. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all tribes of the children of Israel. Continuing Revelation chapter 14, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. These are Israelites who survived the tribulation period, were saved, and entered into the kingdom. And then God singled them out, 12,000 from each of the tribes, and had a mark put upon them to protect them, to seal them from being killed. It was, it was like there were 144,000 Apostle Pauls sent out across the world. You know, these, when these people are saved, they're going to be saved from all the nations of the world. They won't have to go to language school. They'll know the language of the place or country wherein they had lived, and so uh, language will not be as big an issue as missions as it is today. And they will take the everlasting gospel. Look as we read on. They are the first fruits into God. There's going to be more people saved. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Here will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will join the two witnesses in an effort to evangelize the world in the midst of this terrible period of time, this seven-year tribulation period. And it says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom and this is in the context of the tribulation, if you read the verses around it. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Many in the past, many uh, churches and mission conferences have adopted that verse. And some people have gotten the idea or have been taught that the Lord can't come back until we reach the whole world. That's not true. Uh, we're not going to reach the whole world, by the way. I, we're we're going to make every, take, make every effort we can, and we certainly could do more. But it's not going to happen with the church. It is going to happen with the 144,000 during the tribulation. 
And, it, and all the world has to be reached before Armageddon can take place and Jesus Christ can come back at the revelation. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So there is the two witnesses. Stephen, if you're there somewhere, I need some help with this. This is not the right sequence uh, that we set up. The two witnesses and the 144,000 who come into the ministry during this period of time. Now, number five, the Antichrist is not going to be a real obvious personage that you would say, yeah, I don't like him. He, he's, he, he just, he's just kind of sticky looking. He's kind of, no, he's going to be very attractive. He's going to be very charismatic. He's going to be very impressive. He's going to be very talented, very intelligent. He's going to combine in one leader all the things that a human would think make up a, a strong leader in the world. And uh, it says here, if we look closely at De uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He's going to be very subtle, very shrewd, moving undercover at times. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. He thinks he's really great. And by peace shall destroy many. By peace shall destroy many. He's going to be a great negotiator. He's going to be one that can get things done that he wants done his way by negotiation and peaceful settlements. He's going to operate by peace, okay? Um, seal number two I placed here. And it says, And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. At a certain point, the peaceful negotiations and successes of the Antichrist will come to an end. Because the pressures will build and build and build, and then God will release people who, who have a vicious uh, warlike intent here in seal number two, and war will come to the earth. In fact, we see that happening even with the Antichrist, the prince, the little horn in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 say, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, this beast represents the uh, nations, uh, the confederacy of nations in the tribulation period. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. The horns represent national entities. And the Antichrist is the little horn that comes up before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So uh, in his rise to power, three of the ten nations that are in this area of the world are uprooted, just overwhelmed, and he takes control. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And so as you read on, you find that 
his authority grows and grows and grows, and he takes over and conquers the ten nations. Well, then we see seal number three enters the picture, and I put several seals here in a sequence that are happening during this time. So you're, you're living on earth now. Uh, it is, it's, it's sort of like before World War II. Hitler was moving into Europe and across Europe and taking over various countries almost at will. And everybody stepped by and was nervous and didn't know quite what they should do and, and frankly waited too long to get involved. Well, that's what the feeling is going to be here. In, in European area probably, uh, things are changing politically fast. And the Antichrist is moving across this landscape. And then in the midst of this, there comes the third seal. And it's described as a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and wine. What that's saying is that a penny here is a King James translation of a word denarius which represents one full day's work. So what it's saying here is that a full day's work will buy a measure of wheat and three measures of barley. The only problem with that is that normally, under normal circumstances, a day's wages would not buy one measure of wheat, but eight measures of wheat. And in proportion, one penny or one day's labor would bring not three measures of barley, but 24 measures of barley. So either money has inflated or the price of food goods has gone way high because of scarcity. And people start starving across the planet. Unusual, though, those who use the oil and wine still get it. It's a picture here of a society where the elite are on top and the masses are being exploited and put under the control of the elite who, who have the resources to be able to be comfortable, relatively speaking, in this time while the masses are suffering grievously. Seal 4, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, number one, and with hunger, number two, and with death, which is probably disease, and with the beasts of the earth. With the beasts of the earth. Across the globe, all sorts of human issues begin to take their toll in human lives. Starvation, disease, uh, beasts, sword. People lose their sense of security. You wouldn't sit here this morning and be totally comfortable because there's that possibility that, the, that at any moment the, the building may be surrounded and, and we, we may be killed. You know, in some places that's almost true. Well, that's, that's happened, hasn't it? It's very easy to see how that could happen. People have no security. They don't have enough food. Disease is traveling across boundary lines. Even the beasts of the earth. You know, when man is in rebellion against God, the beasts of the earth are always in a carnivorous, uh, fearful state. In Eden, before man sinned, he had dominion over the animals. 
on the ark where all of the uh, souls on the ark were saved, the animals were in compliance in that time in the ark so they could get them through the flood. And in the millennial kingdom, the same will happen, at least at the beginning. But in this time of rebellion, just like back in 1st, 2nd Kings, when the people came into the land and they worshipped the Lord, but they served other gods. I mean, they, they did their mouth service to the true Lord, but they really were serving other gods. It says that God sent lions among them. And they had a lion problem. Not a lion problem, but a lion problem. And that's what happens here. The animals uh, become, become aggressive. In the time of Eden, they were under the control of Adam. But when the curse came, those animals rebelled against mankind, and they pursued mankind as if he was a, an animal of prey. That's when the big dinosaurs were here. That's the picture of the Biloxi Riverbed with a man running from a dinosaur. We know that because Lamech was so burdened about the curse and how it affected the way people lived that he prayed for a son, and when he had a son, he named him Noah, which means comfort, and, and prophesied as a prophet that Noah would bring comfort to the curse of the planet, and he did. In Genesis chapter 9, the Noahic covenant, God said, I will put the fear of man in the animals. So the implication is that before that time, they did not have the fear of man. And so we have here that situation where animals are aggressive. And then seal number five, under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of the Lord and for the testimony which they held. People who got saved during this time and were outspoken about the gospel. They were, they were slain for the word of God that they held to and tenacity confessed and for the testimony which they held. They weren't afraid, even in these troublous times, to have a testimony for the Lord. Seal number six, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and islands were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth... And the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Look closely. What happened here? Just what exactly is it talking about when it says, the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together? Well, when a scroll is rolled out, it covers a great deal of space. But when it's rolled together, it's minimized so you can see whatever's behind it. And the picture here is of a heavens that rolled together. What was behind it? What did they see? Well, look what it says. It says, uh, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
it, it seems in the portrayal here that the heavens are rolled up and it reveals the throne of God in heaven who is issuing these seals and these trumpets that are coming. They see God in some limited way who is in control of everything that is happening despite how it appears here. I mean, it, it seems there's absolute chaos here, but God is still on the throne, and he still offers his salvation. But what do these men do? They don't fall in repentance before God, but rather they run and hide. They hide in dens and the rocks, and they, and they, and they cry out, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne! If God would appear today, would you fall humbly before him and plead the blood of Christ? Or would you go find a hole to hide in? Seal number seven, the seven trumpets come out of the last seal. The first trumpet, hail, fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned up. Trumpet number two, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. Trumpet number three, and the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star was called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Trumpet number four, and a third part, the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Okay, now you got to do a little bit of figuring there. The day, the night, the, the day shone not for a third part. How many hours are in a day? Sorry, say again. Well, that would be the day and the night. How many hours are in the day? Twelve. And how many hours are in the night? Twelve. So if you take the days and you cut them back by a third of their light, now there's only eight hours in a day, right? A third of the day is dark. But wait a minute. That would mean that the nighttime would be six would be 16 hours, right? Because it's dark now instead of light. But at the same time, it says the night was decreased by a third. So that's four hours for the night. What happened those eight hours? I mean, it can't be to do away with the night because the day went down, the night went down, and they, they're, they're interrelated. If the night goes down, there's light. There's got to be more day. If the day goes down, there's darkness. There's got to be more night. So some have concluded from this that this is what Jesus was talking about when he said the days would be shortened or you would not be survived. That perhaps, and this is just a theory, perhaps days were changed from 24-hour days to 16-hour days to somehow relieve the curse of the trumpets and the judgments. Trumpet number five, smoke and locusts. We're not going to read all these for sake of time. But now, in the midst of all the other trauma that's going on, here, here we are now. The landscape around us has been scarred. The water around us has been polluted. There is war. There is disease. There is animals pursuing us. 
Sure, a lot more than COVID-19, huh? Tremendous change and removal. And now in the midst of all this come these locusts. And these locusts, it says, they should be tormented five months. And to them it was given, the ones who did not have the seal of God in their forehead, that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And the torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. They want any way out they can get. But providentially, God even prevents them from taking their own lives. Trumpet number six. And the four angels were loose and slay a third part of men. And the number of the army, the horsemen, was 200,000 thousand. This is the clearing of the way of the great Euphrates to allow an army to come from the east and cross across the area of uh, Europe, Africa, so forth. 200,000, that's 200 million soldiers. Trumpet number seven, great voices in heaven. This is the last trumpet. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the nations were angry, and their wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints. And then that fear thy name, small and great, shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. And we're at the midpoint of the tribulation now. And God appears in the seventh trumpet to give a message to the faithful who are still alive on the earth. And this is his message. You look around you and you won't see one sign that God is here. There is chaos, there is death, there is disease, there is war. You, you say what bad can happen to a nation or a world, and it happened. And so God gives them encouragement. He says, listen, it may look like I'm totally out of control of all this. It may look like Satan has taken over by saying to you, in fact, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. It's about to happen. It's about to happen that Christ is going to come and take control of the world and turn it in the direction that he has promised his faithful. Number seven, the battle of Gog and Magog, or the invasion of the northern king. And we're going to talk about this a lot next week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But this is a significant event in the course of, of time. The battle of Gog and Magog is it's a... Uh, uh, conglomerate, alliance of nations, primarily Islamic in today's terms, that comes south and sweeps everybody out of the way, takes over, breaks down the authority structures of all these nations right down into the Holy Land and, and, and stops at Jerusalem and there apparently kills the Antichrist and then moves on from Jerusalem through the south, not bothering about the two nations there on the other side of the Dead Sea, and into Egypt. And, he, and his partner, his, uh, his associate, the king of the south, who helped him in a pincer movement on the Antichrist, he now turns on and destroys, and he takes Egypt, and he's ready to move on into the rest of the nations of northern Africa. We'll see that next week. And all of a sudden, he hears a rumor from the north and the east. He's in Egypt What's northeast? 
Jerusalem. And he goes back to Jerusalem. And he sets up the camp of his troops between the pleasant land and the sea, which is between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. And guess what? All of a sudden, there comes down fire and brimstone from heaven, and his army is totally destroyed. Totally destroyed. And the faithful say, wow, God is still in control. And then, this is what happens. Satan is cast out of heaven. Number nine, Revelation 12, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not, neither was a place found for them anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Well, we have the aftermath of Satan being cast on the earth. And what you notice particularly, it says in verse 13, underline these words, he persecuted the women which brought forth the man-child. Who is that woman? It's not Mary. It's Israel. It's Zion. The Antichrist, who in the early days so appeared to perhaps be an ally of Israel, that was able to make a covenant to create an environment where the two witnesses could rebuild the temple. Now, having moved away from his subtle, peaceful approach, becomes outright and clearly anti-Semitic. And when Satan comes down from heaven, he says, okay, let's get rid of him. It's time to take care of the problem. It's time for extermination. And Satan himself goes after the nation and Antichrist follows in his steps. And in Revelation 13:3, it says, I saw one of his heads that were wounded by death, and the deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. He came back to life. He came out of the abyss, the pit of the abyss, which is where people who are dead go, wicked people, and he's alive. Revelation 17, 8, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall send out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. So to review a minute, here's the king of the north, Gog, in Egypt, and he hears a rumor. What do you suppose the rumor was? Antichrist is alive. King of the north is angry. I took care of him. King North wouldn't have proceeded down into Egypt unless an enemy alive to fight against his flanks in the back rear guard. He'd taken the Antichrist out. But now in Egypt, he hears that he's alive. He hears a rumor as it spreads, and he goes back with great fierceness and anger, and God destroys him. Guess what? The door has just been opened for Antichrist. The king of the North, God, came down through those nations totally destroyed the structure of the nations, any authority, came down through Israel 
of the Antichrist and his empire in the south and Egypt, just leaving devastation in his way, and God totally destroys him. But when he destroys him, he not only gets the king of the north out of the way, Gog, he not only gets the king of the south out of the way, he gets, he gets control of all those nations he's left in chaos. The king of the north is left in chaos. So there's a massive authority vacuum. And Antichrist, now with Satan cast down on the earth, says it's time to move on. And so he moves on. He moves on. And Antichrist establishes his oppressive regime. Revelation chapter 11, verses 7, he kills the two witnesses. You can read about the details there. They are about the last resistance of any fortitude that he has against him. He kills them. They're out of the way. The public is mesmerized. It says in Revelation 13, 4, they worship the beast saying, who is likened to the beast? Who is able to make war with him? King of the north made war with him and killed him. And now he's back alive again. Who can stand against this individual? Who can stand against him? They are mesmerized. Chapter 17, verse 8, it says, they that dwell on the earth shall wonder. Unbelievable. Who can resist him? And so the Antichrist ascends to total authority over the earth. Revelation 13, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him. That's interesting. Power was given unto him. He didn't have it. It had to be given unto him. To continue 40 and 2 months. That's the second half of the tribulation. And he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Anti-Semiticism becomes rampant. Uh, Satan has tried to shake. We'll see, we'll see more about that next week. See how that unfolds. And then another beast appears in Revelation chapter 13. And this other beast comes up out of the earth and supports the Antichrist. And believe it or not, does miraculous things similar to what the prophets had done. And the deception becomes terribly strong. The Antichrist who's come back from the dead, the prophets there who are doing miracles, God has unleashed and let them run their course. And they're going to exploit and take control of the world. And then what happens? The abomination of desolation appears in the temple. Revelation chapter 13. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Daniel 9.27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, that's where we're at, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for an overspreading of abomination, she shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Matthew chapter 24. Wherefore ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him understand. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, ever shall be. The abomination of desolation. What do you think believers or Israelites who've been sitting under the teaching of the two witnesses and observant of the 144,000 evangelizing the world 
even nominal Israelites, maybe unsaved Israelites, that are hearing this message, and, and they have a conception of the temple and the holy place, and all of a sudden they see the Antichrist set up the abominable desolation in the holy place. Oh, eyes open. That's not God's program. That is an abomination. And they say, wait a minute. What's going on here is not of God. It's of the devil and his Antichrist. And they turn to the Lord. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see more about that. Uh, solidification of power, number six. Solidification of power. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive the mark in their right hand and in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, but him that hath understanding, count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Well, we're running out of time. Vials come next. The vials of God's judgment in the last half of the tribulation period. The first one is noisome and grievous sores. The, the, the second one is death. All the living souls died in the sea. Death to all the sea creatures. The rivers and fountains of water become blood. The sun is excessively hot, such that to get out in it is to be scorched by its heat. And then there's darkness that comes after the heat of the sun. And there's pain and discomfort in the midst of that darkness, such that men grind their teeth. And then file number six, the river Euphrates is dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. What are we getting ready for? Armageddon. When all the kings of the world will bring their forces to destroy God's people in Jerusalem. And so the way for them to come is opened up. Uh, don't always think that if something opens up, it's necessarily from God for some kind of good thing. God opened this river up here to facilitate the fulfillment of his prophecy that he would destroy the nations at Armageddon. File number seven, voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Well, there's still a lot to come. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as it was not since men were upon the earth. Mighty an earthquake and so great and the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Well, then we read about Babylon judged in Revelation chapter 8 and so forth. So I've gotten behind here. It's resurrection of Antichrist, the setting up the abomination and desolation. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven. That's not where our focus today. What's next? Armageddon. Armageddon. You need to read these verses. I don't have time to do it about Armageddon. It's a horrific experience.
for the Israelite Jewish people. God doesn't intervene until the last minute, but finally he does. And he reveals himself and comes down and fights and delivers his people. And he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet of the beast into the lake of fire. <sighs> Some people in COVID-19 have just pressed on and lived life pretty much the way they did. That won't happen in the tribulation period. Tremendous, tremendous changes. Tremendous changes. Well, come next week for chapter 2. We're going to look at that period of time between Gog and the setting up of the abomination and desolation because our verses are talking about that period of time. But I wanted to paint for you the overall picture of this tribulation period and try it in some small way. And this, this outline is not complete. There may be a, I mean, it's, it's, it's accurate enough that you can be edified by it. There might be a couple places it could be tweaked, certainly. It's going to be a horrendous time on this earth. I lead you to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, which says this about these verses. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The rapture could take place at any time. It is at hand. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are going right ahead into the tribulation period. And this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing. As it, I mean, are we going to understand Jesus' statement a little bit better? Unless the days have been shortened, no flesh would survive. But you don't have to go through that. Because Jesus has offered himself on the cross and he says, put your trust in me and I will impute to you my righteousness and you will go up in the rapture instead of staying on earth for the tribulation. Father in heaven, help us to examine ourselves today. Your great holiness which will pour out wrath on this worldly system that will bring the judgment that the world has been asking for for centuries and millennia in the rejection of your clear revelation through your word and your people to the people of this world. Judgment is coming. Lord, we can see the sin rampant all around us. We can see the sin in high places. Those who are serving wicked causes and pursuing avenues that are not in the benefit of the people. Lord, we pray for your intervention. But Lord, we can have ultimate deliverance from that by trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior and confessing our sinfulness. So I pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves today. And as believers, we would rededicate ourselves to use the time that we have left to your glory. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not acknowledged that they're a sinner and they need Christ, I pray today might be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.